Fiction. Refuge of the Incompetent. I am Gaul, and I'm joined by... I'm Moses. I'm Ted. And I'm Brendan. Yeah! (laughs) (laughs) Special guest. Oops. We haven't introduced you yet, so... (laughs) Well, you know what? I'm just going to take the time that we have right now to throw it over to Ted, because this is kind of a Ted-run show this week. We're just here along for the ride, so... (laughs) Take it away, Ted This week, we're talking about the 1974 film Zardoz, a movie in which Sean Connery kills God. Um, <laughs> I've ached uh, for this moment. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's the first spoiler you're going to get in an episode that will probably be full of spoilers for the 1970 films. I mean, Zardoz. you could have every frame of Zardoz described to you, but until yeah. you watch it, you haven't experienced it. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anything we're going to talk about is going to, well, hopefully it'll help you understand it if you've seen it before and don't (laughs) understand it, if there's anything to understand. But I don't think, I don't think if you listen to this show and then watch Zardoz for the first time, you'll think, oh, well, yeah, that's, none of this is a surprise. (laughs) What's that, Um, like, um, philosophical idea where you can't understand I, I'm being so obtuse about this. Some of a, some of its some of its parts. That's what I'm just literally literally what oh, I'm trying that, to say. The gestalt. Yeah, <laughs> that like if we were to break down every little bit of it, you still wouldn't know it until you fully experienced yeah, it. The, as the a gestalt whole. of the of the Zardoz can only once yeah. you experience Sean Connery in motion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this week we are joined by a guest once again. Brendan already introduced himself. Um, <laughs> Would you, <laughs> Brennan, would you like to say a little bit about your credentials or? Uh, I've seen this movie at least a dozen times. <laughs> we, you kind of lose track, but uh, yeah, I'm, uh, it's nice to join some old college chums to talk about this movie and especially one that I think cemented uh, my relationship, friendship with Ted early on in college, uh, our, our mutual discovery that we had both, I think, seen this movie. Um, back in freshman year, we had seated in high school and have been contending with that ever since. Unfortunately. <laughs> um, and also, I was thinking about it. It's like, I don't know if you, when in your life you first encountered the movie, but it's like, oh, I've seen this across like all these different media. So like at high school, we popped it in on VHS and then grabbed the DVD. It was like a sleepover VHS. We got it from the local video store, then DVD. Uh, it's out on Blu-ray, it's either about 35 millimeter. Now it's on Amazon Prime. Bleep that if you can't have brands on here. <laughs> <laughs> Amazon Prime, which is bad. Um, yeah, now it's okay. Now, so. Yeah, now it's not an endorsement <laughs> or a commercial. Um, yeah, I first saw Zardoz when I was 17, I guess. Um, and it felt like being hit in the head with a hammer. I think it starts making sense at around four or five, uh, fourth or fifth viewing. Right. Yeah, I also lost count at some point. 
I wouldn't be surprised if I've seen it 20 times by now. But. Wow. <laughs> I've only like, seen it because of Ted. <laughs> yeah, I That's first true of many people. <laughs> in, <laughs> in college at a yeah. watch party where you made some green bread. What made you bring people to this movie, Ted? <laughs> Why? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just a film about everything, as <laughs> we are going to argue. I don't know, I guess I just like confusing people. There's a picture out there of you in front of the projector that you had set up in our living room holding I think a really comically large martini glass <laughs> just gesticulating to Zardoz like explaining to everybody what it's about and there's like a Gumby head right next to you. Yeah that sounds like uh, 2007 to me. Well, and I think um, as you'll attempt to or will attempt to argue it's like this is a pretty intertextual movie and referring back to your argument about sort of understanding it as part of a gestalt. It's one that uh, you can't really understand without other movies. <laughs> or we've determined that you can't understand without <laughs> Yeah, Brendan is also a film professional, so that was... <laughs> His credentials don't just include having seen Zardoz over a dozen times. Although, that's the most important one. I think I will have opened the show up with a cover by a 70s Italian prog rock band called Zebra. It's a sort of jazz funk version of uh, Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 7, uh, Movement 2, the Allegro, Opus 92. Uh, but it was released under the title Zardoz because that piece of music is a big part of the film, as we will talk about later. But yeah, there's various, there's been various songs over the, over the years that are either uh, titled Titled Zardoz or Sample Zardoz. Brendan, you wanted to play the Beach Boys song about transcendental meditation. <laughs> I sure did. <laughs> and I was, since we're focusing on one, more focusing on one work in particular than we have previously, I was thinking of uh, sort of interspersing in some clips from the film. The sound world of the film is kind of a big part of it. here with a quick interruption. Listen, uh, if you listen to this podcast and you're totally okay with how the music is inexplicably not the music that we talk about, then keep listening. But if for some reason you are like, hey there, uh, what? Well, then head on over to our website, lastrefugepod.com. You can find links to our Mixcloud, uh, even probably if you're on some podcasting platform, if you just check out the page for this episode, there's a link to a website, I'm sure of it. And if there isn't, oh, I apologize. Also, another thing I should apologize for, my husband is currently building a bed in the background. So if you hear music playing and the sounds of hammers hammering away, that's him building the bed. Sorry about that. I don't know how to get rid of that on my uh, very limited audio editing abilities. Okay, I'm done talking. Please enjoy the rest of the show. Brennan, do you want to talk about John Borman, the director, a bit? Sure. Yeah. Zardoz is basically the struggle to bring grain to your mouth. 
Which it actually is. Um, yeah, yeah. John, John Borman um, has had a long uh, and interesting and storied career. He's made some of the most, among the most diverse body of works uh, of, of filmmakers that I can think of, and just each project being really radically different aesthetically, stylistically, thematically, in some ways from the last, but also, or in terms of settings, but I, I, there are thematic uh, sort of threads that run through a lot of his work. Uh, I mean, he started in, in sort of documentary and television reporting in the UK, and then his first feature film was uh, uh, Catches If You Can, a film that sort of tried to mimic the success of The Beatles' Hard Day's Night. I managed to see that movie when I was in hospital, and so I was like in and out of consciousness again, so <laughs> I have to give that one a rewatch. <clears throat> but went on to make movies like uh, Point Blank with Lee Marvin, Hell in the Pacific with Lee Marvin and Shir Mifune, Point Blank, sort of this like almost like new wave, psychedelic neo-noir, reinterpretation of the noir film, but with like intense colors and shadow. It's, he's, it's like a, it's, he's kind of like a, it's almost like a US samurai movie. He's like this ghostly Ronin who's, oh, spoiler, maybe he's a ghost. <laughs> but, but I, you know, a hitman trying to get his $93,000 that he's owed after a, a score on Alcatraz and he's betrayed by his best friend and, and girlfriend or wife. Hell in the Pacific, incredible movie about two former soldiers on either side, or soldiers on either side of World War II being stuck on an island together, a lot of fun. <laughs> and then uh, he went on to make Leo the Last, which is a, a, a pretty unusual movie that I've been seeing, wanting to see for a long time, starring uh, Mar Marcello Mastroianni, the great Italian uh, post-war cinema, as uh, this sort of ineffectual prince of an unknown European kingdom who moves to his father's sort of ducal palace or whatever in the middle of this uh, decrepit London neighborhood discovers his own uh, or is activated uh, into radicalism just by kind of spying the things from afar. It's a little bit like uh, being there, uh, except it ends in violent revolution. <laughs> <laughs> and then he went ahead and made a movie called, a little movie called Deliverance, which was probably mm. his biggest success to that point. Still remembered as this incredible epic of uh, sort of city slickers uh, trying to survive the Appalachian wilderness, going on a, a sort of these like middle-aged professionals going down a river, trying to uh, reacquaint themselves with, with nature before this river that they remember fondly from their childhood is dammed and flooded. And they inadvertently kind of get lost up the river and meet some of the local inhabitants who aren't too kindly to <laughs> city folks. Um, but yeah, I mean, except for the Dave Clark Five movie, he has this <laughs> interest in these like super rugged, hyper deadly, hyper-masculine men of action that are <laughs> plunged into these kind of upside down worlds and forced to be very deadly, but also sort of overcome their inertia, often with a gun, <laughs> most usually with a gun. <laughs> a gun is good. Um, so yeah, the success of Deliverance is what allowed him to make this movie, uh, Zardoz, a sort of a blank check, do what you want film. Burt Reynolds from Deliverance was originally supposed to play the lead of Zed, um, but there was some scheduling conflict. So uh, Sean Connery was cheap after Diamonds Are Forever. I think out of a $1.5 million budget, his salary was $250,000 of that, with the condition that he drive himself and John Borman to the set each day. <laughs> <laughs> and, and live in his house. <laughs> yeah. 
I believe it came out of John Borman originally wanted to adapt Lord of the Rings to film and realized that would be just too expensive. So instead he made this sort of fever dream that came to him one day. <laughs> um, I believe he said that he doesn't really know where this movie came from in his mind. Yeah, and it shows on screen. <laughs> It's interesting to read some of the like some of the the text and background and interviews around this movie when people are trying to like you know figure exactly out where what was the point of inspiration for this movie and he sort of starts talking about like yeah I wanted to adapt Lord of the Rings but I was sort of mentally stuck and you know, I was in tension and tried to break that tension there was this frustration and then you basically learn over time that he had ingested all of this like all of the science fiction this thinking about futurology. Uh, at like you know in the mid to late 60s uh, also a lot of myth uh, he's obsessed with like the Arthurian legend and went on to adapt like the Arthur legend in Excalibur. I read somewhere that he had like originally had a script just about a woman that escaped society and went to live in like a utopian 60s 70s communes and then was like no this is too real I gotta I gotta make it <laughs> I gotta put a man with a gun in this yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is a John Borman can't sell this yeah. <laughs> there's no man with a gun yeah. <laughs> yeah there's this great book with um uh by uh Michel Simon who kind of looks at all of his film all of John Borman's films in this one volume and he uh John Borman just like charmingly describes having visited uh, North California and having like done in-person research at some of the like back to the land, like new age um, hippie communes, which you can totally see in the movie. I mean, that really inspires what the eternal society becomes is like this exploring the sort of visual reference, but also like the dynamics, the power dynamics and some of the politics at play there. So yeah, supposedly he did, he did do some work, but I haven't read any of his like memoirs or any biography on him. So I'm kind of curious, like how much time did he actually spend up there? Was it like a weekend at Esalen or Lined up of the time is a big inspiration for the film. And I think that's kind of reacting to the, the turmoil of the 60s and 70s. To me, the like an important background of the film and what connects it to a lot of other films at the time is that they're responding to this situation where in the decades after World War II, you have incredible economic growth and the most prosperity you know anyone's ever seen. And then at the same time, you have this sort of radical unrest and discontent with it turning into kind of the malaise of the 70s. And I think a lot of these films are kind of working through what was happening there by sort of transplanting that, that post-war prosperity into future utopias that are flawed or people are discontented with, even though they're, you know, superficially ideal. See how hard it is to make a, a succinct synopsis of this movie? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and we haven't even talked about anything that happens in it. <laughs> exactly. I don't know if we want to put in any of the Arthur Frayne monologue that opens the film. Um, well, interestingly, but, it was tacked on at the end because I guess in a couple of previous screenings, John Borman realized like maybe this isn't very penetrable <laughs> to audiences. <laughs> so he, he writes this this uh, introduction by sort of like the, the Merlin character of the film who comes back. Yeah. 
later in the later on. Yeah, and it's shown at the beginning of the film. He's giving this speech. There's his disembodied head <laughs> bouncing around the screen like a Windows 95 screensaver <laughs> like, so just, when he slowly comes closer to the audience. that he's 300 years old uh, because he lives in a society of Spanish death. We later learn that the setting is uh, the year 2293, which means that Arthur Frayne was born in about 1993. So he's actually, he's like a late millennial or early Zoomer. So yeah, he lives in a society that has banished death, which is called the Vortex. Uh, Arthur Frayne runs this big stone head called Zardoz. A giant uh, floating stone angry head. Yeah, it has kind of a perma grimace on it. Imagine um, a giant stone Karl Marx. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, permanently grimacing. Yeah. And I think absolutely. he misremembered it in like a film commentary. He's like, oh, this French newspaper told me, you know, I better get approval before I use Vladimir Lenin's head. And it's like, <laughs> no, this guy has hair and like a full yeah. beard. It's clearly Karl Marx. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like Karl Marx waking up one morning and like his carbuncle is really uh, uh, <laughs> hurting a lot and he's just going. Um, so yeah, the stone head um, brings, goes from the vortex, the outlands, where you have, it brings guns to the exterminators who are these men wearing uh, like orange speedos and <laughs> weapons. Uh, bandoliers. Bandoliers. <laughs> who rule the the Brutals, um, who are like 70s ad executives who have been <laughs> um, just wearing the same suit for decades. And so the film is about one of the exterminators who gets in the Stonehead, Sean Connery, played by Sean Connery, and enters the Vortex. And we learn about the society through his eyes. He eventually becomes the agent of the Vortex's destruction or recreation, or both. He enters this like <laughs> sterile commune of, of immortals uh, and he teaches them how to have sex and die. It's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's pretty succinct. <laughs> my rewatch last night, I realized he, you know, he's being examined by one of the eternal uh, scientists, May, who kind mm. of takes a liking to him and acts as a protector. Uh, but wants to study him as this uh, biological curiosity because the Eternals have been sealed off from the outside world that's uh, presumably been, you know, uh, ravaged by uh, pollution and or we don't really know what the catastrophe was, which is kind of fun and interesting to think about. But she mentions after the scientific examination of him that he's a mutant mm. and that all of his friends are mutants. So it got me thinking about this as like his, you know, he and the other exterminators as sort of like, Ninja Turtles. <laughs> <laughs> and Arthur Frayne is kind of their splinter. 
<laughs> Middle-aged mutants. <laughs> you can really, it's a it, beautiful thing about this movie is you can project anything onto it. It's like a crystal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's... point going to talk about the costumes and the fact that it was John Borman's wife, right? Who was the woman behind all the costuming. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's very intentional, the, choice, <laughs> the choices that she made. I mean, I think you have to admit that Sean Connery's costume is pretty iconic. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> so the, the Eternals in the Vortex are all dressed in like lots of pastel tones. Um, a lot of like midriff blouses and mm-hmm. stuff um yeah i think it captures the hippie image while still seeming like futuristic pretty well there's um, lots of um exposed nipples on all genders <laughs> and sexes which is interesting um for a movie made in the early 70s uh, but uh yes yeah, uh john borman's wife designed the costumes uh, a lot of a lot of the eternals wear these sort of like pharaonic headdresses there's lots of like it's kind of this interesting mix of like tie-dye and craft and knitting. Some of them seem like fancy silks or like far out synthetics. Uh, mm-hmm. Also on the rewatch, I noticed like how great their shoes are. So <laughs> I've never I'll... looked at their shoes. <laughs> there's some great, there's some great <laughs> shoes in Zara. I also Aside read... from the Puss in Boots. <laughs> <laughs> I read that she was like, oh, the Brutals are going to be wearing what's functional and comfortable. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, I can't imagine. But. Yeah, in the Irish countryside, you just <laughs> yeah. want an orange Speedo and a bandolier. Yeah. Oh, yeah. and the best part about it is that the, like, they filmed in this tiny little, like, local Irish hamlet and that these, like, country Wicklow artisans were hired to, like, make these costumes. It's like, okay. <laughs> yeah, one of the interesting criticisms about the movie is that it's, like, it's got a lot of ideas for one movie. Um, and it's really ambitious for a movie of its budget, but he did, you know, Borman, and interestingly, the production designer, I think it's Arthur Pratt, who also did production design on a little film called Solar Babies. Hey! <laughs> yeah, callback. Uh, they did a lot with a little. And so, yeah, they, like using the local craftspeople, they carved the giant floating stone head. There's like two models that are used in the film out of styrofoam and like hurled it around with a crane. And then yeah, the, the County Wicklow location because they didn't have that much budget for locations or sound stages. It was like, they're kind of shooting in, in John Borman's backyard. He's lived in Ireland for many years. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, speaking of uh, the produ- people who work on the film, uh, the cinematographer on this film is Jeffrey Unsworth who also did uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey. Yeah, for a low budget film, like. I don't know. I think, like, I think it's a beautiful looking film in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, both because, yeah, how it was shot, the natural lighting they use, but yeah, also the the setting and uh, sets and costumes. <laughs> Going to it being kind of a cheap, cheaply made film with a lot of uh, sort of handmade stuff. I think when you first, uh, when you first see it, you're like, and you're used to high budget sci-fi, you're like, oh, they think this is the future. But some of the technological aspects of it are kind of prescient. All the Eternals in the Vortex have 
like Apple watches. Um, <laughs> they have wearables that kind of connect them to this computer network uh, that connects them all all day. Yeah, and tracks all their labor output and grain levels and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's kind of two components because they have like an embedded crystal that connects their brains and thought waves to like an ostensible cloud storage computer called the Tabernacle. But yeah, then the wearable <laughs> rings act as, yeah, sort of like receiver transmitter projectors. And uh, yeah, going back to like Unsworth and, and some of the other production staff, there's a lot of like projection of like slides and 60 millimeter projection that was kind of yeah. revolutionary for the time. And a lot of it's just done on set in camera, not using optical printing or a ton of special effects. Yeah, the whole sequence of uh, Sean Connery going through the tabernacle and mm -hmm. having all this crazy stuff projected on him is a blast. It's a psychedelic blast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think Zardoz is a good reminder that like, with a little imagination, you can just make a movie look like whatever you want. Um, yeah. Should we try to tackle a little more plot summary before we uh, make larger insight leaps into the broader yeah, Zardoz world? Yeah. Um, I think it's, uh, Sean Connery teaching these people how to have sex and to die is a great summary. I does the my nerves coiled up like a So Arthur Frayne um, has been kind of tasked with running the Outlands, um, which is everything outside of the Vortex. And you kind of discover that they gave him this, this job because people didn't want to do it because it made them like psychically impure. Mm -hmm. Basically, like everyone is connected mentally. And instead of sleeping, they have this thing called second level meditation, where like someone sings this high tone and then they're all... <laughs> Yeah, mentally connected. You can get punished if you have any kind of bad thoughts during this time, and so... Uh, and the sentence is being aged, um, because everyone is immortal, because if you die, you're just like a groan in a little bag again. The only punishment is aging, at which point you just be kind of become an eccentric old kook. <laughs> I love the, the, the second DVD commentary kept calling them crones. So all of the, <laughs> the, the people accused of uh, psychic violence, as it's called in the film, and other, uh, you know, uh, crimes against their commune uh, become aged and become, they're, they're termed renegades because they're going against the sort of psychic consensus of this, like, feel-good, supposedly feel-good commune. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, they become crones. I guess they, they congregate in this weird abandoned like dance hall and all wear like <laughs> evening clothes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, tuxedos and dinner jackets and like flapper dresses. And because everyone's psychically connected for it to be a utopia, you have to think and feel it's a utopia. And so you get punished for not thinking it's a utopia, uh, which is ultimately sort of what makes it no longer utopia. But so because they'd want to stay psychically pure, they just give one guy the task of flying around the stone head, managing the outlands. And so eventually it turns out that he's been breeding these exterminators over the centuries to become mutants who are superior in some way that's never fully explained. He's designed to eventually come into the vortex and destroy it and end and, and immortality. Um, which he does by penetrating the tabernacle and killing God, as <laughs> previously discussed.
And all of this is interestingly kicked off because of the introduction of agriculture into the outlands, <laughs> uh, at least for, from Zed's perspective. So he and the other exterminators have been fed this like religious ideology from a giant floating stone head that they believe to be God, uh, that they have to kill all of the brutal outlanders who, who multiply on our legion. So they, they reproduce, certainly they, they consume all of what's left of the remaining resources, and they basically are responsible for destroying the world. So the exterminators as an act of faith have to go around killing and, and, and raping the, the survivors of whatever catastrophe happened in the 20th century when Zardoz commands them to start, you know, farming wheat for some reason. It's like they've always eaten meat uh, and killed people. All of, he, he recalls... Stuff. Yeah. <laughs> there is stuff. Uh, he recalls that they, they were forced to convert to this, like, sedentary agricultural lifestyle and then start providing their, the, the product of their harvest uh, to this giant stone head that goes around collecting uh, all of the things that we later learned, the... the um, the Vordexes and the Eternals couldn't grow on their own. And why is that? <laughs> <laughs> that's because there's sort of a disease that's begun in the Vortex, which is apathy. People just stop responding to stuff and they still have to feed them. Yeah, it's Basically, not... their, their BIM was out. <laughs> yeah, they, they run out of BIM. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Brendan has secretly yeah. been the, sh the shadow producer of our yeah. show. <laughs> What's going on every here? Episode. I'm a super fan. I love stilts. Brendan and my friend Stevie are the two people that are just <laughs> listening to our show. And drive down the tunnel. Yeah, the society, like, it's an absolute, like, it's a total democracy. They vote basically on everything. Like, it's a direct democracy with psychic voting, um, where everybody gets to vote with different weird hand signals and, like, noises. Um, and... Ted, I'm looking at your outline now, and uh -huh. I, I can't tell if this is a pun or a uh, mistype, but you wrote total democracy as total surveillance. Surveillance, like, su no. Yeah, surveillance? It, it's French for surveillance. Oh, <laughs> I, thought, <laughs> well, I don't know. I assume. Oh, that's a joke. <laughs> I thought, uh, what is this? Is this a word so, I don't know? <laughs> so in, it is a word you don't know. <laughs> now it's time for Dictionary Corner. Okay. Hey! Uh, it's S-O-U-S valence. Is how yeah, it's spelled so for the listeners. Surveillance is, um, you know, when like a central authority is watching you and uh -huh. surveilling you. Surveillance is a term that means it's like horizontal surveillance, kind of when everybody is, is watching, watching everybody other. else. Okay, because I, um, I thought it was sous vide, you, like, <laughs> where, where you cook cook meat in a in a bag of water. <laughs> well, yeah, it's like undervalence versus supervalence, or not not supervalence, but uh, supervision. <laughs> okay. Yeah, everybody's basically surveilling each other all the time, which is how you can be caught for crimes of uh, psychic violence. That was Pedantic uh, Corner with Ted. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's a, like a, it's a direct democracy, but it's also completely egalitarian. One of the big dramatic scenes is when a character named Friend, who's kind of 
a dissident who's conspiring with Arthur Frayne has Zed, Sean Connery, help him prepare a meal, which is against the rules. Everyone has to prepare every meal completely by themselves with their own labor because mm. uh, it's an annoying commune. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I mean, watching it again, that scene reminded me how this film kind of contrasts with Herland. You know, in Herland, it's this utopia of like totally unalienated labor because there are no men anymore. So everyone's just kind of a female man. Right. And in this film, because people don't reproduce anymore, the men have kind of become emasculated and impotent. So mm-hmm. also everybody is kind of a female man, whether mm. they're <laughs> a, ma- a man or a woman, how we would think of them. And it's also this society where everybody, you know, does their own work in this kind of perfect harmony. And in her land, it's just pretty uncomplicated. Like, yep, this is great. Um, we figured it out. <laughs> and Zardoz is sort of that same situation, but what if that just got boring? <laughs> <laughs> Friend under psychic scrutiny of the rest of the, the Eternals, when he's like forced to go to second level meditation and he refuses, uh, basically reveals that he, you know, his, his terrain in the run up to that is like, he's just tired of centuries of like cleaning up dishes and <laughs> doing sort of the drudgery, like cleaning the toilets on the Starship Enterprise, oh, but man. forever, right? All so, this woman's work, it's so terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think that is probably a central part of like what makes it interesting and messed up, <laughs> right? I mean, um, I think like Borman and Perkins Gilman are writing from two very different perspectives. But yeah, he, he sort of advocates, I think on our, on, on this, Rewatch as as every rewatch of this film, you know, brings different aspects to the horror. It's like, oh, he watching it with subtitles. Friend is like, why don't we? Why don't we just kidnap a bunch more Zeds so they can do all of the housework? Which is uh, an interesting thing to come across. It's like, oh yeah, he's not only is he he, he bored, even though people are sort of in some ways. Liberated, liberated from like an eight-hour workday, they can kind of specialize into their own thing and, and pursue their particular niche interests. There, there is still that that bit of, even though they have like nuclear bread furnaces and magical <laughs> millstones that run themselves, they still have to do the the bread kneading and and braiding of the green loaves and uh, delivering bread to the, the increasing number of uh, apathetics who drop hmm. out of society and no longer want to perform there their allotted tasks, which is, leads us to the crisis of the, of the vortex. Why don't they just all sublime? <laughs> Different mythos. Um, yeah, I mean, like going back to Thomas More's Utopia, and I feel like I've said that sentence before in the show, <laughs> um, like Utopia is defined by being separated from the rest of the world. Like in Herland, that's definitely the case as well. And here you see that like the utopia can never quite separate itself out. And that's what eventually destabilizes it. Right. Like when they're explaining how the vortex is created, they're like, yeah, the world was falling apart. Um, so we made this big bubble to keep ourselves separated so we could like um, preserve humanity's uh, yeah, knowledge and traditions and kind of a heritage but with this sort of temptation to get zeds to do the work and brutals to grow the wheat ends up being about the relationship of the utopia to the outside of the utopia i was going to say it's arguable that that was kind of baked into their society so they 
the, the wealthy, the clever, the, the sort of scientists and, and rich and the, the beautiful, the artists, they all lock themselves in, uh, in these domed vortexes of the late 20th century and right. are able to develop these incredible technologies. Uh, but they do so uh, to the exclusion of everyone else as the world is crumbling. And later when they bring Zed in and investigate his visual memories, they're, they're thrilled by news from the outside, but also they, they make the point that it's like, well, uh, these people who Zed has been killing all these years are like suffering and dying. And isn't this terrible? Like, how mm. can we watch this? And other people are like, oh, it's entertainment. And you can't possibly compare their feelings to ours. So while there's this sort of eternal democ- like egalitarian uh, direct democracy for, for the Eternals, there's just absolute deprivation. And- like there's, there's a, there's, is this point of place of privilege that you have to come from to be able to like, like in the 60s to drop out from society and go form your own commune, right? Like, oh, me and my friends that grew up in um, the Upper East Side, uh, we just have enough money to go buy a farm in Maine and we're going to go start our commune. Like, that's definitely this, you can see how he's influenced by that. Arguably, too, like the the great society making that possible, like the access to public education to decide that you don't want modern industrial technology and just, you know, uh, I remember hearing a story about like members of the Coquettes, this like drag, acid drag troupe in San Francisco who would, you know, fund their commune or at least their like collective meals by going down to the social security or the, the local social services office and, and getting food stamps. Like, I can't work. Right. I've got egg on my shirt. I'm a little <laughs> wacky. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's something that in some ways can't really exist anymore. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's not that external support. And it, I mean, it's kind of the relationship of the utopian commune to the society that makes it possible. And it's the relationship of this, that society to like the third world that is, you know, the source of primary resources and uh, mm-hmm. super exploitable labor. I remember yeah, like but. when I was younger having this like or even now having this personal like fight between myself being like, I just want to go escape to the woods somewhere and drop out from this nonsense and being like, that's, that's a privileged and kind of messed up thing to say, right? Like you should, everybody here is suffering. So why don't we (laughs) (laughs) try and do something about it? Uh, Yeah. So thanks John Borman for trying (laughs) to reunify our society. (laughs) No matter what the violent cost is. Yeah, and I mean, as you pointed out, John Borman, or as we've been pointing out, John (laughs) Borman has this preoccupation with, like, masculine heroes, and there's a lot of, like, kind of misogyny in this film. Um, Did you say misogyny? Misogyny? Oh, no, I thought it was a new word that I didn't (laughs) (laughs) know. It it is to misogyny (laughs) what Seuss Valence is to surveillance. We're calling it misogyny, too. Um, friend when he um, gives a speech about not wanting to do the washing up um, he, he, he becomes renegade because he refuses to go to second level this psychic struggle that kills him or makes him unconscious um, but he's kind of while he's struggling trying to get out of second level meditation mm. he's giving the he's like his inner feelings are coming out and he says that he hates all women birth fertility superstition but the interesting thing about that is those are all thing, and that seems like kind of a reflection of like being emasculated in the vortex, but birth fertility and superstition are all things that have been eliminated from the vortex. Like, <laughs> um, they're things he associates with women, but they've been done away with.
I was thinking about uh, this film and sort of the equilibrium of the, the vortex uh, in relation to uh, ecology, sort of the emerging environmental consciousness of that era. And a lot of the films that we'll probably talk about or that I'm thinking of when I think about this and is exemplified by the vortex is just this notion of equilibrium and closed systems. So they, the Eternals think they've built this perfectly functioning system that can survive into eternity, bring them to other planets and move like the best parts of, you know, Western civilization to some other planet so they can start over again. Uh, but really like, and at the heart of, I think, Borman's critique is that he kind of comes back to this idea that we're still human beings deep down. We're still this, you know, biological organism with emotions and drives. And even though the technology is advanced uh, centuries or millennia into the future, we still have these sort of like simian brains that, that want things related to our own sort of short survival. And that seems to be one of the, the forces that bring down the eternal society from the inside. It's just like... What are we collecting all this stuff for if there's not going to be any new people? Uh, when they merge waking consciousness and second level uh, consciousness, then there's, there's their libidos sort of shrivel and atrophy. And there's, again, no need for reproduction if they live forever. And it becomes this kind of political question where, you know, they, they had debated before the film, apparently, like whether or not they would have new births and, and just shake things up in some way. <laughs> like, it makes you ask, like, why, why collect all of this culture and make all of these scientific advancements if it's not for the propagation of life? Which, is it a, an, a, like a, is that, is that an ultimate concern or is that just ingrained misogyny, right? <laughs> What's the point of anything if you're not gonna have kids? <laughs> I do really love the idea that um, somebody who may have only seen Zardoz once or never seen it and is about to go watch it is thinking it's going to be this like profound, <laughs> enlightening film first, first, first go. <laughs> and I, think, I think we do need to warn people that <laughs> You're probably first... not going to experience Zardoz this way, uh, no. first viewing. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I didn't. You're going to be like, what is he wearing? <laughs> exactly. They're like, it's like the barbed wire around the outside of this beautiful yeah. gem at the center. It's like, oh, the knee-high boots of bandolier and red diaper. Like, what's that about? And you pierce it. It's like, it's just a massage all the way down. Exceptional for a shield. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that keep it, keeps it from being kind of just uncomplicatedly, unambiguously like misogynistic is that mm-hmm. um, Zed doesn't just like enter the vortex, penetrate the tabernacle, and like remasculate um, this emasculated that society. Is like the most phallic it, use of words that you just. <laughs> like. yeah, that was intentional. <laughs> <laughs> well, at one point, the tabernacle tells Zed that he has penetrated. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> Right. But like Zed also changes. Um, like he's promised some of these Eternals that he'll kill them when the time comes. And uh, he finds like he can't do it. Like everything he, he was has gone. So like his just like I'm a, I ride a horse and shoot brutals personality also dissolves. Um, right. When he, yeah. So I think yeah, it starts a family at the end. Settles <laughs> <laughs> down. Becomes a new type of masculinity. <laughs> yeah. <Get a> skeleton. <laughs> <laughs> the story is told with 
through themes of like masculinity and femininity, definitely those are a major element, but I think it's less about like, it's time to go back to being a man and more about like, yeah, not settling into equilibrium, but this kind of continual process of, uh, you know, synthesis and antithesis. Uh. <laughs> right, the more the, the thing that goes against nature or the aspect of their society that goes against nature isn't necessarily or totally the, the like leveling of uh, of gender, but more so the the stagnance that comes out of preventing a natural process like evolution, which is yeah. one of the weird things that gets us into talking about how it is that Zed was raised up for brutality, which it turns out was like selective breeding by Arthur Frayne over uh, several decades or centuries. Yeah, it's more the attempt to create like a static static perfection. It does feel a little odd to compare it to Ursula K. Le Guin um, with her <laughs> like flawed utopia. But um, yeah, I think this film is definitely not about like a future dystopia or like even like a utopia that fails. It's about basically the limits of utopia as such. Um, I think the funniest thing that happens in the film is when Friend and Zed are in this thing that used to be a spaceship and then they went to the stars and it was another dead end. So he's just sitting in it, like asking the supercomputer to catalog cars for him. And it's such a, like, a, like old dad in his man cave moment. Saturdays were made for dads. <laughs> and dad's cars. <laughs> Forever. Well, and the- yeah, I think, it's, I think it's one of my favorite moments of the movie too. Um, my favorite moment is Sean Connery saying, potatoes? <laughs> yes <laughs> or no? Or no. <laughs> um, I say that a lot. Yes, you do. <laughs> <In my life. laughs> yes, you do. Um, just the, the idea of a post-scarcity society that is able to reconstruct humans from the cloud. Uh, but it's interesting how science fiction gets some things wrong, like into the future where, you know, he a ha- uh, friend is trying to catalog all cars across all manufacturers and has to request approval to do a basic Excel sort. <laughs> like you can, we, we can make a levitating head out of stone and we have like a completely cybernetic economy, uh, but- uh, Only so you know, many cycles available yeah, on our supercomputer. It's a bit asking a bit much. <laughs> that wraps around the whole body blue. Well, I won't get real happy all by myself, but I'd walk it happier if I walked it with um, But yeah, just on the theme of like it becoming sort of the fruition and destruction of Utopia, there's a scene at the end where the exterminators have come in, they're just shooting everybody, and Arthur Frayne, who's been pre- absent, he's been regrowing in a bag for most of the film, <laughs> pops into the frame. Um, <laughs> oh, no, he comes, yeah, yeah, he comes from, like, yeah. below the camera. It's like, aha! <laughs> <laughs> and he explains to Sean Connery how, like, this was all part of his plan, and um, Zed tells him, so Zed has been inside the tabernacle and kind of defeated it by shooting himself in a mirror, um, negating the <laughs> negation, if you will. And Zed says, like, I've seen, like, I've seen into the mind that led you, like, you've been led and bred yourselves, which suggests that this kind of computer 
that is also the collection of all their consciousnesses originally created this plan to destroy the vortex and itself, mm -hmm. even though it was originally programmed to uh, erase memory of its creation from everyone so it could never be destroyed. So it, Ted, don't <laughs> spoilers for the 1974 film. Um, the commentary track with uh, on the the Twilight Time R.I.P. Blu-ray with Jeff Bond, Joe Fordham, and Nick Redmond. I was fascinated that you brought that up because they uh, on their rewatching also arrived at the same conclusion that it's like wait Zed infer or like tells friend and Arthur Frame that it's like you didn't even come up with that plan, which <laughs> never occurred to me. So congratulations, you solved. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it seems that, like the utopia itself knows that it needs to be like destroyed and recreated to actually be utopian. Um, mm. There needs to be like, yeah, a continual process of antithesis and synthesis. It's a literally mind-blowing film. <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah. it, it might hurt the first time if you're if you're a newcomer. <laughs> So there isn't that much music noticeable in the film other than Beethoven's Seventh, mm -hmm. um, but John Borman hired this early music, like composer and arranger and musician named David Monroe to do some of the music. And you do hear, you don't hear that many like early music instruments, but um, David Monroe is also one of the performers who is on the golden disc that went out into space with Voyager. Oh, really? <laughs> so, uh, and it's like an English early music track. Um, oh, that's cool. Yeah, Zardoz is truly connected to everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the other main bit of music in this, which it's, I think the opening credits and the end of the film is a Beethoven Symphony Number no. 7, the Allegro, which shows up in a fair number of other movies as well. It's weird what it does, like what it does in all these movies, like the the themes or I guess emotions that it evokes and the certain crucial points that it comes up across these different movie seems to sort of link them in this yeah. weird ineffable way. <laughs> it, well in one case it's extremely in one case it's used to just telegraph to everyone that this is actually a Zardoz remake. HBO's Westworld which oh, is yeah. supposedly a remake of the film West 70s film Westworld but it's actually a remake of Zardoz and <laughs> if you can follow it along at home. Yeah. <laughs> There's a scene in the second season that is almost exactly, but you know, it's plot-wise, it is the same as the Zardoz scene where the brutals come in, or exterminators come in and kill everyone. Yeah. And they play Symphony Number no. Seven, Movement Two, and it's just. Do you have you watched all of that show? I can't get through it. I watched the first two seasons. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it to everyone. I just want people to know that it's a Zardoz remake. <laughs> <laughs> Take your word for it. Rewatch Westworld, the film, and then hopefully one day watch Future World. Oh, list. yeah. Future World's fun. I'm just a sucker for anything that's about robots slowly becoming self-aware, which we'll, I think we'll talk about next week. Yeah. Oh, not next uh, week. How dare you? Two weeks. Oh, yeah, two weeks. About <laughs> in a future week. Uh, and so that similarly is my recommendation for Westworld's the series, you know, it's got its moments, but uh, it's also got a robot saying, oh my God, I'm a robot. And <laughs> I'll, watch, I'll watch anything that deals with it. So it's Beethoven's seventh second movement is also, it's both in love exposure, of course, but also why don't you play in hell? Really? Yes, it is. Holy. I don't remember <laughs> where. X-Men Apocalypse is probably the jewel of that list of music, <laughs> music is featured in. And uh, it's not the second movement. 
uh, in Darjeeling Limited. It's I think the fourth. Wasn't a movie. I think it. I think it. I think it's both. I know. Is IMDb it? says. IMDb says it's both. Be. Believe those hacks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we were talking at the beginning of the hour um, or last hour by now um, about kind of the the world that Zardoz was made in. And um, I think there are films made around the same time that kind of reflect the same, te- same themes and end up um, arriving some of the same like plot features and structures and end up being similarly very weird films. Um, they're not all of them as weird as Zardoz. <laughs> um, and uh, Brennan and I, as Zardoz fanatics over the years, have identified a lot of films. They're like, oh yeah, that's a vortex. Oh yeah, he, that's a tabernacle. He's, he's entering the tabernacle now. <laughs> and unfortunately, we've forgotten most of them over the years, <laughs> we found. There are a few that really stand out. I think Logan's Run is the one that um, is most, stays most in my mind. Um, since it's also set in like a future that's seen environmental devastation and these people kind of bubble themselves off, kind of try to achieve immortality in equilibrium. Their, their solution is instead of never dying and regrowing themselves in bubbles, they just kill everyone at 30 and lie to them that, and tell them that they're being reborn in the fiery ritual of carousel. (laughs) (laughs) And... The main character in that film is an exterminator who terminates runners, who are people who try to escape instead of die at 30. I like that actor. What's What's his name? Michael Um, York. Michael York. Yeah, I love him. He's so handsome in that. (laughs) He's great. (laughs) Um, And yeah, he discovers the truth and kind of escape. Instead of coming from from the outer world, he escapes to the outer world. Meets P- Peter Ustinov, <laughs> his cats. <laughs> Having rewatched this movie this morning, I was uh, anticipating, I had forgotten about it, uh, but like I was anticipating the big reveal being like, oh, there's some council of elders that secretly runs the society from behind. Like, oh, wouldn't it be funny if this gerontocracy actually runs the society of 30 year olds and enjoys all the excess resources that they, they provide or whatever. Uh, but no, it's actually uh, a disembodied computer. Like it's kind of like, kind of like Zardoz, which is, uh, and, and I guess one of the reasons why, like, I don't know, maybe because John Borman thinks archetypally being <laughs> so union that when he put things in that movie, you think about these future technologies archetypally and you see them elsewhere. It's like, oh yeah, it's a crystal. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he meets Peter Ustinov, which is so great. He just like, lives in the library. Of, he lives in like the U.S. Congress building. Um, yeah, he lives. Uh, he lives under the dome with his cats, and uh, <laughs> he's just this doddering kind of old bibliophile that hasn't seen any humans since his parents died, whom he buried, uh, and they were like the only human settlers that he knew living in the ruins of Washington D.C. So uh, all he has are his um, his cat friends he names after well he gives them sort of vulgar names like after T.S. Eliot 
but I'm sure they have inner names. But what's fascinating is that, yeah, he starts just, you know, it's the first human beings that uh, Peter used it off. Exactly. Old, uh, old Possum's <laughs> Book of Practical Cats. He just, Doll is holding it up to the camera. This he, is he, a, um, what are, it's an audio cassette. <laughs> <laughs> I, hopefully people will be able to listen to that 300 years into the future <laughs> I know, <right? laughs> but imagine like you you escape this like uh dystopian society where you're on the run from the law and then you meet this doddering old man who just starts quoting cats at you <laughs> just portions of elliot but what's also fascinating and unites those two films both zardoz and logan's run is that there's bits of t.s elliot in either yeah, look, I, look, I mean, Logan's Run also, their vortex also seems to be sort of sliding out of disequilibrium because uh, when they escape the, the dome, the bubble, they go through this kind of food processing area where this robot named Box, <laughs> who is more than machine, more than man, <laughs> um, he's, he's, <laughs> he, he's in his ice room and he's supposed to be like processing and saving fish and plankton and sea greens, protein from the sea. But it's obvious that he's like, that stopped coming in years ago and he's just been freezing people. Um, so As they escape, if, he starts freezing them. So more frozen bodies, but in a different way. Right. Right. And it's not quite clear if like he's making Soylent Green out of them or not. But um, <laughs> it's definitely, there's obviously like a crisis of the relationship between the dome and the, like, the periphery that supports it. He reminded me in this rewatch of Wally, just this sort of like <laughs> cheerful robot that works forever, just boxing things up, but also is just going to kill any uh, escapees who leave the domed city. <laughs> I do like the idea of, of Wally just uh, being programmed to eventually kill something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like a, he, he, Box is kind of cat like. He's like, look, I, look what I brought you. It's like, no, don't, don't bring me these. I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> how are the other how are um the final program and um uh, Britannia Hospital Britannia Hospital I mean apart from just being within the same era are they also they're yeah, not they, vortices are they or are they well they're both films about making a tabernacle um okay got it <laughs> like the <laughs> Did, did, wasn't that apparent to you when you watched it? <laughs> <laughs> like, Tanya Hospital? Come on. <laughs> the, the, like the, cre the mad scientist doctor is played by the same actor in both Britannia Hospital yes! and the final program. Okay, it is, right? Okay, good, <laughs> yes. good. Because I thought I was just watching the same movie. I don't, <laughs> again, I watched both of them yes. today literally in a row. <laughs> wow. so. I mean, Britannia Hospital is sort of about the same, uh, like, social turmoil as like, the other films are set in. It's just in a more contemporary representation but it's also about a scientist trying to like make a new kind of man by combining a um, computer and a brain and he was originally trying to make it like a Frankenstein that can contain like a brain that has been connected to the computer like um, Johnny Namak but, yeah. <laughs> but that, that doesn't work so at the end of the film he's just like oh screw it and like plugs a microchip into a solitary brain <laughs> yeah. and in the final program they take the brains of <laughs> like eight eight brilliant scientists yeah put them all into a computer which therefore contains all human knowledge mm -hmm. um it makes sense ted <laughs> and to um 
create a human brain that can then can hold all of that knowledge that's been routed from the computer. <laughs> they try to create like they use radiation to try to create a hermaphrodite. It's like the only a way it dyad works. Type. Made out of two people <laughs> who ends up just being like a a weird like caveman. Uh, the Hyros Gamos Ted. Yeah, who <laughs> <laughs> talks like Humphrey Bogart. Um, <laughs> So this is my fun fact about the final program. Mick Jagger was originally <sighs> going to play the role of Jerry Cornelius, but he turned it down because he thought the script was too weird. <laughs> I'm going to save my talents for, uh, for Free Jack, where I can really shine. Uh, it's the life extension and revival movie that I actually want to be in, not, not some weird piddly thing. <laughs> oh, the final program is based on a novel from a series of novels by Michael Moorcock, who... Mm -hmm like a, a sci-fi and fantasy writer and magazine editor who I think was like a big figure in creating like the British new wave of sci-fi. I've never read any of his work um, but I think yeah. a lot of it is kind of satirical or like metatextual and referential. I'm, I was reading somewhere that like these are all these like great Shakespearean actors that are in this movie and the, they had to be like you guys this is supposed to be funny you're gonna need to like <laughs> add some some satire to you, you gotta be a little bit funnier with the way you talk don't take it too seriously. <laughs> I, I mean I think the funniest part in the final program um, is when you get to the part where they find this, this supercomputer that contains all of human knowledge there's just a little label on it that says yeah. the most complex computer <laughs> in the world do not touch it's really <laughs> funny <touch. laughs> they got their but... batman signs uh, wall signs up yeah i'm so final there's program also like came... a mm -hmm. there's like a crazy computer programmer lady who literally consumes her her partners her love her lovers <laughs> yeah, I'm never sure what's going on. <laughs> Just like a static arm that's like. Bah, 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 bah. Final program came out the year before Zardoz, um, and yeah, a lot of the same themes. But I didn't see it until this year, and I don't think any film has felt as much like seeing Zardoz for the first time as seeing that movie. Like, yeah, I just don't know what's going on. It definitely requires further study. I don't remember a single thing about it though. And we <laughs> both watched it together and I'm like, I can't tell you. I mean, it, it's funny you mentioned that it was like from a series of novels and it almost implies that, is there end text that's like, and catch, catch final program guy again in the sequel? Like, did it seem like it was gonna be part of a series of films? Maybe. It certainly wasn't. I, I I thought it was interesting thinking about like Zardoz and Sean Connery trying to shake the image of, of James Bond as being like, you know, this, uh, you know, at that point, like he felt like he'd been played out or he'd been aged out as Bond, but like trying to shake his image as James Bond and find a new film role. The the, the commentators on the, the DVD commentary were like, well, it's kind of ironic that his next uh, film in order to shake that image was like, uh, a, uh, a man, uh, you know, a, a killer who tries to infiltrate a secret world uh, of, of shadowy high technology, um, like beings, uh, and then bring it down from the inside. And then ultimately he has sex at the end. <laughs> <laughs> Archetypes. Um, yeah. So the final program is also, it's set in the background. You're just kind of told the world is coming to an end. Like there's another kind of funny scene that feels prescient now is one of the characters is on the phone and he's talking about um, how Amsterdam was just like incinerated, but the stock yeah. market's going up. <laughs> oh, I like that character, he's funny. 
He was like a weird American general. Yeah, who's wearing like a big Ankh necklace. <laughs> oh, just yeah. like in Logan's Run. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> Want to listen to the show with all the music that we talk about? Have no fear. Mixcloud is here, she says regrettably. Anyway, just go to lastrefugepod.com. You'll find all the information you need there. Enjoy the rest of the show. thoughts on Britannia Hospital. Okay, number one, Mark Hamill is in it. Yeah. (laughs) And apparently he got cast in it because he just like went to London on a trip with his good friend Malcolm McDowell and like got accidentally cast (laughs) in this movie. (laughs) (laughs) You just wanted to get high with Malcolm McDowell. (laughs) Which film? I just figured he was on break from like uh, Empire Return of the Jedi or something. I can't remember. Yeah, this, this is what, like, 1983, right? Yeah. This was, like, yeah, it was like the year before Return of the Jedi. Like, He's like unwinding. But... Yeah, I think it's like between. <laughs> and then uh, number two was so I watch a lot of like dumb British TV, and there's this like show called 8 out of 10 Cats. 8 out of 10 Cats does Countdown. And they have like a comedian come on, and this one comedian was doing like British hospital DJs. And I was like, oh, that's a weird premise. Like, okay, that's funny. But they're real. They're a real thing. (laughs) (laughs) British hospital. No, they are a real (laughs) thing. British hospital radio stations exist and they've existed for a while. (laughs) I was taken by like Bernie, the wacky DJ in Britannia hospital as well. And I was like, yeah, how is this just for like the, the premium, like the, uh, the premium tier patients, like the private (laughs) patients of NHS or whatever. But yeah, I I didn't know that was a thing. No, I, cause then when I watched this movie, I was like, wait, there can't be, two British comedians out, like, this isn't, this must be a thing they're, they're There's a long fun. running joke in <laughs> the UK that they don't tell anybody else about, I'm like, yeah, hospital dream, dream job. Third fun fact, there's some good old-fashioned British racism in this film, so just go into that with a grain of salt. There is, there's no <laughs> black Don't talk about like British racism and salts, I mean, that's tough. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, like the previous film, Oh Lucky Man, um, also directed by Lindsay Anderson and like the, the, um, Yeah, Britannia Hospital is the third film of a trilogy, of a loose trilogy, uh, by Lindsay Anderson, starring Malcolm McDowell. I was gonna say like the the Mick Travers or Mick LaSalle thing, but those are all like film critics. (laughs) I think his name is Mick Travis. Um, Okay, there we go. (laughs) Uh, yeah, like the, the British, like, union activist who's like, or like the organizer who's like, send them back to Slur Place. Yeah. Uh, it's just like, oh, why? Or when they that. when they go into where the African general is in the hospital. Oh, yeah. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that scene is like, uh, uh. The thing that makes it tabernacle is like Professor Miller, the, the mad scientist in like both those last two films of the Lindsay Anderson trilogy is like he creates a literal pyramid that you see kind of later <laughs> or earlier in Zardoz that's like the the thing that retains all knowledge or whatever but uh, radical life extension and unlocking the pineal gland it's all needed for space <laughs> travel <laughs> uh,
what other films are in, in, in this shared universe? You had children and men there. What, where was your reasoning for that? Uh, well, I mean, it's sort of considered it sort of a prequel to, um, <laughs> <laughs> to Zardoz. I mean, it's about, it's about borders and crises of like reproduction. Also, yeah, walling yourself off against uh, societal collapse in the broader world. And right. also the, the problem of like sort of individual will to live uh, or the, the purposefulness of like material culture or uh, ideas passing them on if reproduction is either obsolete or impossible. The, the main crisis affecting the world of children of men is that uh, women are struck by infertility and it's kind of about UK trying to being the only surviving civilization or whatever the only the only uh, society that still soldiers on uh, but ultimately like the, the the pointlessness of trying to keep calm and carrying on when the world's on fire and like what's the point of uh, gathering up all of the treasures of civilization or you know all this priceless art if there's not going to be anyone around to enjoy it in the future this sort of the arc of the arts idea that uh, Clive Owen's cousin is spearheading it's just like I don't he doesn't think about it he's just doing it because it's it's what he likes to do <laughs> just want to catalog these cars man <laughs> <laughs> yeah I got my matchboxes I've got my I've got my Guernica you know let me be take your pills <laughs> this show <laughs> <laughs> we have to end it with a time lapse that's the only way <laughs> we still haven't described the plot of zardoz <laughs> no, <not> really <laughs> thank you everybody for listening this week thank you everybody for listening brendan thank you for joining us this week that was um, a lovely experience and um where can people reach us if they have uh... oh yeah if you would like to thank us for showing you the light of zardoz please email <laughs> us at the last refuge of the incompetent at gmail.com also brendan if you know who voiced the about... computer in the movie barbarella <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah brendan has a specific request about the movie barbarella if yeah. you know the voice of the actor, like the actor who voiced the computer Alfie on the, the film, the 1968 film Barbarella, which we didn't get around to talking to, but talking about. Mm. But if you know, if you have any information that could lead to identifying that actor, email me <laughs> at <laughs> the last page of the incompetence. And um, if you... <laughs> If you do not have a computer, you can call 805-253-3091. That's 805-253-3091. And if you leave a voice message and you would like for us to air that voice message, message, um, we will, I guess. I don't know. I don't know how it works. Somehow that sounds a lot riskier than <laughs> asking for an email. I don't know. <laughs> and uh, yeah. Thanks for listening. Next week we will have like a fun little compilation show of music and old sci-fi recordings, maybe some readings of some old books and it'll be a little bit different. Yeah, we're going to take the week off from talking. Yeah. <laughs> Don't have to listen to that anymore. <laughs> Good night, incompetiers. Oh yeah, sleep well, incompetiers. <laughs> you do it better. Your 8 p.m. bedtime. <laughs> <laughs>
perfection.